This is Naima Novetsky from TanaStudy.com. This will be our fifth class on Parashat Bechukotai, as we move today into Parak Chavzayim, into chapter 27, the last chapter of Sefer Vayikra. The chapter deals primarily with the laws regarding the consecration of various items to Hashem and the monetary evaluation of those items, a set of laws known as Arachim. These cover the consecration of persons as discussed in verses 1 through 8, the dedication of animals covered in verses 9 through 13, the dedication of a home in verses 14 and 15, and finally, the consecration of fields discussed in verses 16 through 25. The chapter then continues with laws relating to firstborn animals, laws regarding a special type of a vow called a cherem, and finally, it closes with the laws of ma'aser, the laws of tithes. The chapter serves as a somewhat anticlimactic conclusion to the book, especially after having just read the blessings and curses of chapter 26. Those rewards and punishments would seem to be the more appropriate way to conclude the book, making us question the placement of our chapter. Why is our chapter, and not chapter 26, chosen to conclude the book? What lessons might be learned by having the book end specifically with laws of vows and the consecration of items to the Mikdash? We'll leave this question for the end of our class, after we have a chance to explore the laws themselves. So starting at the beginning. The first set of laws in the chapter deal with someone who vows the monetary value of a person to God. Verse 1. Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when a man makes a vow, the person shall be for Hashem by evaluation. The Torah then proceeds to delineate the monetary value of various categories of people, depending on their age and gender. Verse 3. Your valuation shall be of a male from 20 years old to 60 years old. Your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver after the shekel of the sanctuary. If it is a female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels. This first category covers men and women aged 20 through 60. It is the age group with the highest valuation, with men being valued at 50 shekels and women at 30. In other words, there is a 5 to 3 ratio between the value of a man and a woman. The next category speaks of people between the ages of 5 and 20. Verse 5. If the person is from 5 years old to 20 years old, then your valuation shall be for a male 20 shekels and for a female 10 shekels. The men in this age group are valued at 20 rather than the 50 of the first group and women are valued at 10 rather than 30. Though it's logical that the value of a person might change during different stages of life, and even that the value of a man and a woman might not be equal, it is somewhat more unexpected that the worth of the males and females should change by different proportions, making us question why in this category is the male-female ratio 2 to 1 rather than 5 to 3 as in the first category. The third category relates to those less than five years of age. 
ואם אני בן חודש ועד בן חמש שנים, והיה ערכך הזכר חמישה שקלים כסף, ולנקבה ערכך שלושת שקלים כסף. If the person is from a month old, even to five years old, then your valuation shall be for a male five shekels of silver, and for a female, your valuation shall be three shekels of silver. At this young age, the value of people is drastically reduced, with males being worth only five shekels and females just three. Here then, the ratio of male to female reverts back to five to three. The next verse speaks of the last age group, moving to those older than 60. Verse 7. If the person is from 60 years old and upward, If it is a male, then your valuation shall be 15 shekels, and for a female, 10 shekels. In this category, males are valued at 15 and women at 10, with the man's worth dropping more than the woman's, so that here the ratio between the two is 3 to 2. The next verse speaks of what to do when the person who made the vow cannot afford to pay the value of the one whom he vowed to God. Verse 8. But if he is poorer than your valuation, then he shall be set before the priest, and the priest shall value him. According to the ability of him who vowed, shall the priest value him. The object of the words, he shall be set before the priest, is ambiguous. Whom is being placed before the priest for evaluation? Rashi, based on the Gemara, says that it refers to the person whose value has been dedicated to Hashem. The Natif questions, though, how is that helpful? Considering that none of the people here are being valued at their true individual worth, but only by the worth set by the Torah, why would one need to see the person whose worth was being dedicated? His individual body is irrelevant. As such, the Nitziv suggests that according to the simple sense of the verses, the Torah refers to the one who made the vow himself. The priest evaluates him to see how much he can afford to pay. The system that we've just seen laid out for evaluating the worth of people for purposes of dedication to God is distinct from the system used for dedicating the houses, animals, and land mentioned in the continuation of the parasha. As we'll see, those are evaluated individually, and each specific object being dedicated is subjectively given a value. Animals and houses are assessed by a priest who sets the amount for each, while a field is assessed based on the amount of seed that can be sown in it and the number of years remaining until the yovel. By people, though, as we've seen, the valuation is objective. It makes no difference if the individual whose worth is being dedicated is healthy or sickly good-looking or ugly, accomplished or not. The evaluation is determined by gender and age alone. The highest value is associated with the period during which man is at his peak, ages 20 through 60. The next highest value is given to those who are in the years preceding this period, from the ages of 5 until the age of 20. The third level is when a person moves into old age, above 60, while the lowest value is associated with the years of infancy and early childhood. In each category, the male is rated higher than the female, but not with the same ratio between them. This system raises several questions. First, why are people not evaluated subjectively like the other objects? In addition, what is the logic behind the amount, behind the amount set per category? And finally, 
Why is the ratio between males and females not constant throughout? Rabag answers our first question. Rabag points out that it is natural that people might want to dedicate the worth of a person as a protective charm of sorts for that person, that he merit to be watched over by Hashem, to be viewed positively and worthy of reward. But since there is no amount of money in the world that can really match the worth of a person, as people are literally priceless, the Torah decides to set its own prices, ensuring that they would not be too much of a burden on the one making the vow. This explanation, though, still does not account for the change in value between the various categories or the differing ratios between males and females. Rashi partially addresses this last question. He explains why the ratio between male and female is closer when they reach old age. He writes, Upon reaching old age, a woman is closer in value to a man. Therefore, a man loses more than one-third of his value in his old age, while a woman loses just one-third of her value. As people say, an old man in the house is like an obstacle in the house. An old woman in the house is a good sign in the house. This would seem to suggest that in general, the valuations are based on the differing utility of people at different stages of life. In their prime, a man can do much, much more work than a woman, and so the ratio of their respective values is 5 to 3. But in old age, the male and female's utility even out a bit, changing the ratio. Though Rashi does not say so, does not say so, it is possible that the value set might be similar to the worth of a slave in the slave market. Yosef, when sold as a slave at age 17, was sold for 20 shekels, exactly the amount set here for those aged 5 through 20. If this is true, and the values are set based on the amount of agricultural work that one can do, it is not surprising that throughout, the male is valued higher than the female. He can simply do more work. As far as the changing ratios between the males and females in the different categories, it's possible that in contrast to what Rashi suggests, the change is actually not fundamental at all, but technical. The base ratio between the two is set at 5 to 3, as seen in the values set for man's prime years between the ages of 20 and 60. Though it doesn't seem so at first read, it's possible that in the other categories, this basic ratio is actually maintained. But since it doesn't result in a round number, Tanakh rounds either down or up. As such, in the age 5 through 20 category, where the male is worth 20, three-fifths of that would be 12, but Tanakh rounds down, setting the woman's value at 10. Similarly, in the older age category, where the man is set at 15, three-fifths of that would be 9, so the Torah rounds up, setting the woman's value at 10. This solution is logical, but not without its difficulties. It's not so simple that the market value of men and women is necessarily different from one another. In Shmot, when speaking of the laws of goring oxen, Tanakh mandates that if an ox gore either a male or a female slave, its owner must pay 30 shekels, suggesting that both male and female slaves are worth the same amount, and that this price is 30 shekels, the value of a woman aged 20 through 60 in our chapter. These questions are perhaps what leads Ibn Ezra to state, 
v'haklal kihug dirat ha'katuv, that the laws must be understood as scriptural decrees, a decree of the king whose logic we do not totally understand. The next verses move on to speak about the dedication of an animal. Verse 9. If it is an animal of which men offer an offering to Hashem, all that any man gives of such to Hashem becomes holy. Verse 10. He shall not alter it nor change it, a good for a bad or a bad for a good. And if he shall at all change animal for animal, then both it and that for which it is changed shall be holy. This verse speaks of a prohibition known as isor tmura, prohibited exchange. If a person vows to bring a certain animal as an offering to Hashem, he may not exchange it for another animal, even if he is replacing a poorer quality animal with a better quality one. If a person nonetheless does so, the penalty is that both the original animal and the second animal are now consecrated to Hashem. Apparently, the Torah fears that a person might come to regret his decision to dedicate an animal to God and wish to switch it to a lesser one. As such, the Torah provides a disincentive for exchanging animals and has this apply even when desiring to replace a lower quality animal with a better one. Verse 11 speaks of impure animals which cannot be brought as sacrifices. If it is any unclean animal of which they do not offer as an offering to Hashem, then he shall set the animal before the priest. And the priest shall value it, whether it is good or bad. As you, the priest, values it, so it shall be. Verse 13. But if he will indeed redeem it, then he shall add the fifth part of it to its valuation. According to the simple sense of the verses, the Torah here speaks of someone who pledged an animal that is impure and is not allowed to be brought as a sacrifice, dedicating it to Bedek to the general temple fund, but not for sacrificial purposes. The sages, though, learn that this verse refers to an animal which was pure and had originally been dedicated to the altar, but was then blemished and became unfit. Either way, the priest evaluates its worth and whatever price he sets, be it good or bad, meaning whether or not it would match the animal's real market, va market value, that is what the animal's worth is determined to be. If an outsider then wants to redeem the animal for money, this is what he pays. If, though, the original owner himself wants to redeem the animal, he must pay its worth but also add a fifth. We'll see that this is true for other dedicated items as well, probably to ensure that people don't belittle their dedications. The next few verses speak of dedicating a home. Verse 14. When a man dedicates his house to be holy to Hashem, the priest shall evaluate it whether it is good or bad, as the priest shall evaluate it, so it shall stand. If he who dedicates it will redeem his house, then he shall add the fifth part of the money of your valuation to it, and it shall be his. The law here is the same as by dedicating an animal. 
If someone pledges a house to temple use, the priest evaluates it, and if the original owner wants to redeem it, he must add a fifth as well. Verse 16. If a man dedicates to Hashem part of the field of his possession, then your valuation shall be according to the seed for it. The sowing of a homer of barley shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver. When dedicating a field, the value is not set by the priest, but by the yield, or perhaps more accurately, the size of the field. Every part of the field in which one can sow a certain measure of barley is worth 50 shkalim. Verse 17. If he dedicates his field from the year of Jubilee, according to your valuation, it shall stand. Verse 18. But if he dedicates his field after the Jubilee, then the priest shall reckon to him the money according to the years that remain to the year of the Jubilee, and an abatement shall be made from your valuation. The value of the field is further determined by how many years are left in the Jubilee cycle in which the land can be sown. If one dedicates a field in the first year of the Jubilee cycle, he pays a full 50 shekel per area. But if it is later, one subtracts from that amount according to the years that have already passed in the cycle. Verse 19. If he who dedicated the field will re indeed redeem it, he shall add the fifth part of the money of your valuation to it, and it shall remain his. As with regards to animals and houses, here too, if the original owner wants to redeem the field, he must add a fifth, and then it reverts to his ownership. If he will not redeem the field, the field, or if he has sold the field to another man, it shall not be redeemed anymore. Verse 21. But the field, when it goes out in the Jubilee, shall be holy to Hashem as a field devoted. It shall be owned by the priest. The verse teaches that if though a different person redeems the field from the Kodesh, it can no longer be redeemed by the original owner. When the Jubilee year arrives, it does not return to the original owner, nor though does it remain in the possession of the person who redeemed it. Rather, it goes back to the Middash and is given as property to the priest. The next verses bring one more scenario regarding a field. Verse 22. If he dedicates to Hashem a field which he has bought, which is not a field of his possession, then the priest shall reckon to him the worth of your valuation up to the year of Jubilee. And he shall give your valuation on that day as a holy thing to Hashem. Verse 24. In the year of the Jubilee, the field shall return to him from whom it was brought, even to him to whom the possession of the land belongs. If someone who had bought a field from another, meaning a field which is not part of his inheritance and is really to be returned to its original owner in the Jubilee year, and wants to dedicate this acquired field to Hashem, the priest calculates the field's worth based on how many years remain until the Jubilee year, and this is the worth for, its pur for purposes of redemption. However, in the Jubilee year, whether or not it has been redeemed from the Kodesh, it returns to its original owners, 
for they had never asked that it be dedicated to the Mikdash. Verse 25 ends the section by clarifying the worth of a shekel. Bechol erkacha yeh b'shekel ha-kodesh, esrim gira yeh ha-shekel. All your valuations shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary, 20 giras to the shekel. The chapter continues with two exceptions to the laws of dedications. Firstborns, which cannot be consecrated or redeemed since they are inherently holy, and the laws of haramim, which is a unique type of dedication with more stringent laws which prohibit their redemption. In Yerta Hashem, we'll talk about these laws in our next and last class and devote the rest of this class to the question we raised in the very beginning. Why are these laws of arachim, of vows and valuations, placed specifically here? Why, it is, why is it they, and not the blessings and curses, which serve to conclude Sefer Vayikra? Many have, many have addressed the question, with some giving somewhat technical answers, and some more fundamental. Several of the answers shed light not only on our question, but also, but also on how the various commentators evaluate the desire to dedicate to the Mikdash in general. It's possible that the chapter's location at the end of the book is related not to its content as much as the content of the preceding chapter. As Rav David Hoffman implies, it's possible that the Torah simply did not want to end the book with a series of curses and preferred to conclude with a section of laws. This, though, does not explain why specifically these laws were chosen to end the Sefer. The Kliakar then provides a different answer suggesting that there is what to learn from the juxtaposition of our chapter with the curses that precede it. He tells us, Our laws follow the curses to teach that the nation vows to consecrate things to God in times of distress. The Kliyakar points out that we see this phenomenon by Yaakov as well, who similarly vowed to Hashem when he was in distress and on the run from Esav. In Breshit 28, we read how he prays to Hashem, vowing that if God is with him and watches over him, giving him food to eat, clothing to wear, and that he returns him home in peace, then he will consecrate a house to God and give Hashem a tenth of his possessions. Given the comparison to Yaakov, one might think that the Kliakar views such vows in a positive light. However, he then elaborates on the differences between Yaakov and the nation. In contrast to Yaakov, who maintained his righteous path even after he was granted his request and returned to Israel in peace, B'nai Israel tend to make such vows and think about God only in times of calamity. When things improve, they forget about God and veer away from ways of righteousness. According to the Kliakar then, the act of vowing is in and itself not problematic and may even be praiseworthy. But if one thinks about Hashem and makes such vows only when one needs something from Hashem. That is not okay. Our relationship with Hashem is not supposed to be based purely on need. Rav Hirsch also suggests that the placement of our chapter can teach an important lesson regarding how one should view the vows mentioned. He suggests that our chapter does not come as part of the main body of laws within the book, but rather as an appendix at the book's end because while the rest of the Sefer deals with one's obligations to the Mikdash, our chapter deals with voluntary gifts, those instances in which a person on his own wants to offer a gift to God. He suggests that the fact that the blessings and curses precede this chapter teaches that whether or not one brings of these voluntary gifts, if one has kept the laws obligated of him, one will be blessed. 
And whether or not one brings of these gifts, if one has sinned, one will be cursed. As such, it seems that Hashem does not view the voluntary gifts of our chapter as being extra special, nor as an example of unique righteousness. They have no power to atone for a life of sin. The Mikdash does not strive to be a place which acquires the possessions of others, but a place which acquires their souls. In other words, Hashem is not looking for man to sanctify his animals and possessions to Hashem, but that he sanctify himself via observance of Hashem's mitzvot. More recently, Rav Menachem Litek has also picked up on the fact that our chapter deals primarily with voluntary consecrations and has used this to explain its placement. In contrast to Rav Hirsch, though, he views the vows as a positive phenomenon. He points out that really, our chapter is not the only one in the book to speak of voluntary actions with regards to the Mikdash. Sefer Vayikra actually not only closes with a discussion of voluntary gifts, but it also opens with them. Parashat Vayikra begins by detailing the laws of the Ola, Mincha, and Shlamim, a series of voluntary offerings. As such, while most of the book deals with one, uh, one's obligations vis-a-vis the Mikdash, it's book-ended by a discussion of voluntary gifts, either to the altar or to the Mikdash's general fund, to Beda Kabai. Rav Liebteg suggests that the rigid detail of the mitzvot of Vayikra may lead one to believe that there's little room for self-initiated expression in one's own relationship with Hashem. To counter this possible misconception, the Torah may have placed these two parshiot at the opening and conclusion of Sefer Vayikra to stress that the rigidity of halacha need not stifle personal expression. Rather, it should form the solid base from which the individual can develop an aspiring, dynamic, and personal relationship with God. In Yerta Hashem, in our next class, we will look at the rest of the laws of our chapter and review Sefer's Vayikra as a whole as we conclude our study of the Sefer.